those are conversations that need to take place early on. Really have those conversations if you can within the first 45 days of your exchange, because that's your identification period. Put a property on that you're in love with, but make sure you have backup properties that you'll be able to fall back on if there is an issue with the title or there is an issue with the closing. 1031 exchanges provide real estate investors the opportunity to put more of their money into buying and fixing up new investment property. The tax deferral program encourages more real estate transactions and creates a positive domino effect of economic growth for various industries, including the title insurance industry. Despite the overall benefits, 1031 exchanges often come up on the political chopping block. Most recently, the Biden administration has proposed eliminating the deferral on real estate profits of more than $500,000. In this episode, I talk with Michelle Fitzpatrick, who is the Vice President of Northern 1031 Exchange. She explains the basics of the 1031 Exchange program, why it's so important to real estate and title professionals, and what you can do to help save it. I'm Amanda Farrell, and this is Title Talks. Now, before I ask the first question, can you go ahead and just share a little bit about who you are and your background? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate all the time that you're taking today to learn a little bit about 1031 Exchange and to have me here. So thank you for your time. Like Amanda said, my name is Michelle Fitzpatrick. I'm from Northern 1031 Exchange. We are a wholly owned subsidiary of Northern Bank. We're based out of uh, just north of Austin in a town called Woburn. We have a 12 branch footprint. So we're a relatively small bank, but we have a really big commercial uh, presence. We started the exchange department about six years ago now. So I've been with the bank uh, seven years. So I came on and then came into the uh, 1031 exchange role when they were starting the business. Um, we started it because we have we do a lot of franchises, uh, a lot of lending for Dunkin' Donuts especially. And what we were finding was the franchisees were selling a whole store, a whole group of stores, and then they were buying a whole group of stores. And we were doing the financing for both. And then we were sending out the proceeds during the exchange. So for eight, 180 days or six months or whatever that due diligence period was, um, those proceeds were going out and they were sitting in an exchange account at another bank. And we smartened up and realized that that was an opportunity for us. So in 2015, we built our entire business on franchise exchanges. And we were doing these large Dunkin' Donuts exchanges and everybody was happy. And then in 2017, we had tax reform. So as of January 1st, 2018, we could only do uh, real estate. So the tax code changed and personal property, aka businesses or franchises were taken out of the tax code and out of the ability, and you didn't have the ability to exchange it any longer. So um, we started doing just real estate and our business has grown ever since it's booming right now. And I know that I'm sure that all of you guys are really, really busy with closings right now because it's a really hot market. Now, I'd like to take a, a quick step back and just kind of go over for those who are maybe not familiar at all with 1031 Exchange. Can you tell us what a 1031 Exchange is? Sure. Simply put, a 1031 exchange is an IRS tax code. And so when executed properly, it'll allow you to defer your capital gains taxes um, on the sale of an investment property if you exchange it for another investment property. So I'm going to just read the code because it's very, very simple and it's very clear. It says, no gain or loss shall be recognized on the exchange of real property held for productive use in a trade or business 
if such property is exchanged solely for real property of like kind, which is to be held for productive use in trade or business or investment. So it's investment property, it's business property, it's real property for real property. And like kind is a little vague. So it just means deeded property for deeded property. You can sell a condo and buy an industrial building as long as it's deeded. And Can you describe your role as a qualified intermediary and is a qualified intermediary required for all 1031 exchanges? Yeah, so a qualified intermediary is required for all deferred exchanges. So the only time the IRS does not require a qualified intermediary is if it is a true swap. So the way the exchange worked, the exchange has been in the code, 1031 exchange has been in the tax code since 1921. The tax code was written in 1918. So literally three years later, this capital gains and 1031 exchange was written into the tax code. And at that time, you didn't have to pay taxes if you swapped a property with somebody. So I own a property that Amanda wants. Amanda owns a property that I want. We swap. We don't have to pay capital gains taxes. That was great for a number of years, but right now it's like finding a needle in a haystack. If you're, if I'm looking for a property, the chances of me finding a property that Amanda wants and Amanda wanting my property is really, really slim. So in the 80s, um, the tax reform was changed and they allowed for qualified intermediaries to step in and assist with that swap. It is required if you are purchasing a property or you're selling a property to one party and then you're purchasing a property from another party. What we do is we draft the exchange agreement and all the assignment documents. So all the contracts are assigned over to Northern 1031 or the qualified intermediary. Um, We accept assignments of all of those contracts. And then we notify one of our big things. We're like a quarterback for the exchange process. So we notify all of the parties that are involved, the realtors, the closing attorney, the the seller's attorney or whoever the title company may be, the buyers. So we kind of get involved notifying everybody just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, We provide instructions to the settlement agent because the client cannot take constructive receipt of the funds. So at the closing, the funds need to come directly to us. So we provide that information to the settlement agent, making sure that the funds get directed towards the qualified intermediary. Um, From there, we open up an escrow account in the name of our exchanger, and we hold those funds in that secured account. And that's where those proceeds will be held until they buy a new property. So they have 45 days to identify a replacement property, and we're in charge of receiving that identification form. And then we send the funds or the proceeds to the settlement agent for their replacement property. So when at the end of the exchange, we just kind of give them a nice little package and they're good to file their tax returns showing that they've done an exchange. And when I was you know, reading about 1031 exchanges, there seemed to be some confusion regarding who could act as a qualified intermediary, particularly if uh, an attorney that someone already knows and does business with, if they can be the QI for a transaction. Can you talk a little bit about that, like the rules regarding who can act as a, a QI? I love, love this question. So the IRS specifically states that a qualified intermediary has to be a neutral third party. So there are a lot of QIs that, or a lot of CPAs, I should say, a lot of attorneys, they act as the qualified intermediary because they can, but they can't do it on behalf of their client. So they have to do it to somebody that's not their client. Um, so it does have to be a neutral third party. If they have any skin, you know, any 
interaction in that transaction or any relationships in that transaction, they cannot act as a qualified intermediary. And when someone is looking for a person to act as their QI, what are some of what, what are some of the criteria that you would suggest they look for? This is a great question. So not all qualified intermediaries are created equally. There is no independent or regulatory or government oversight of qualified intermediaries, which I find scary. I mean, literally anybody can open up shop, hang a sign and say, I'm a qualified intermediary, I'm gonna hold your funds and let's hope for the best. So unfortunately it is not a regulated industry. So you really do, we really tell our clients to make sure you do your due diligence. And we give our exchangers a sheet to ask questions. If you don't hire us, that's fine, but make sure that you do your, you know, you do your homework. I have people that call me and say, oh, I can get somebody on the internet for 500 bucks or whatever it is, whatever that number is. And I tell them that that's fine if that's what you want to do, but ask these questions because these are really important questions. They're holding your proceeds and it's a proceeds of a house. So we're not talking a couple thousand dollars. I mean, we're doing exchanges anywhere from a hundred thousand dollars all the way up to $20 million, $30 million. It is important to know what their processes are, what their procedures are, and how they're audited, how they're regulated, because it's not, you know, because the industry itself, you don't have to be um, licensed, qualified intermediary. You do need to ask these questions. Find out if they're part of the only trade association. There's a national trade association. It's called the Federation of Exchange Accommodators. Find out if they're part of that trade association. That's where they're getting their up-to-date information. It, it validates them in some way. And that trade association provides a continuing education certification or a certification with continuing education called a, a certified exchange specialist to CES. Make sure that they have that. That's, that's validating that they have been through training, that they know what they're talking about, that they have resources available at their disposal to answer any really difficult questions, um, and that they're getting educated in continuing education on an annual basis, because you do need continuing education to keep that certification. And then, you know, how are the funds held? That's another really, really important question. You know, are they held under dual control? Can one person go rogue? Can an employee go rogue and take off with their funds? How is that held? Make sure that they have errors and omissions insurance and that they're bonded. The nice part is, is that being a bank-owned qualified intermediary, we are on, we're owned by a bank. We're audited just like the bank is. Every year an auditor comes in and takes a look at our procedures, takes a look at samples of our exchanges and make sure that everything is in line. You know, we're overseen by the division of banks and other state agencies. So there's a certain level of comfort that people feel when they're going through a bank qualified intermediary because they know that those procedures are in place and that they know that their funds are going to be secure. Yeah, that's it's really shocking that there's so little regulation and yet there's the requirement that you work with someone that you don't have necessarily a, a former business relationship with. I, I find that really surprising to be honest. Right, right. It's it's it is a little scary. And people, I mean, people advertise online for I'll do your exchange work for five hundred dollars and people feel okay with going to them and and it may be a legitimate business. It may not be, but 
certainly do your due diligence. And the Federation of Exchange Accommodators is a great resource that is available to anybody um, that they can go on, they can look up QIs, they can look up that due diligence questionnaire to ask, you know, when they're interviewing QIs. So yeah, not everybody's created equally. Right. And so, you know, speaking of due diligence and a lot of what title agents do in preparing for real estate transactions, what is the connection there in terms of how 1031 exchanges impact what they do on a regular basis? This actually just came up the other day. So I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and we were talking about really like the domino effect and 1031 exchange I'll just start by saying 1031 exchanges promote real estate transactions, plain and simple. I mean, 1031 exchanges, I think are 10 or 20% of all commercial real estate transactions have a 1031 exchange component to them. More importantly, though, I think we're encouraging people, qualified intermediaries, and I'm assuming the attorneys and the title agencies are always encouraging people to purchase title insurance and making sure that it's part of the conversation. And that's because if there's an issue with the, a 1031 exchange is so time sensitive, you literally have 45 days to identify a property and you have 180 days to close on that property. If you're doing an exchange and you're bumping up against that 180 days and the title comes back and there's an issue with it, you don't have, you, it, once that 180 days is gone, it's done. You can't, you're going to pay your taxes. Your exchange is going to fail. And if somebody's relying on purchasing your property, or if you're selling a property and somebody's trying to sell, somebody's trying to buy your property that's doing an exchange and your property's title fails, that's going to be an issue for them. That's going to fail their exchange. And they're going to, they, I don't know if they could have ramifications on that, but that's a big, big deal. These people are losing thousands and thousands of dollars in taxes. Um, and again, it has this domino effect because a lot of times multiple parties within the transactions are doing exchanges and they're bumping up against their timeframes. So title issues are a big problem if there's um, time constraints. So we encourage everybody to make sure that title insurance is part of their part of their transaction. And well, so since it can take time to clear certain title defects, do you have any recommendations for title agents to ensure that their clients don't bump up against that uh, 180 days and that everything goes smoothly for their transaction? Yeah, I mean, that's a conversation. It's always important to talk to the buyers of the property and making sure that they're getting title insurance because a lot of times it will turn into another exchange. Even though they're buying the property, they're going to be selling it at some point. So it's important to have that conversation with the buyers. But the people that are selling and the buyers may not have title insurance or they're trying to clear a title, those are conversations that need to take place early on. Really have those conversations if you can within the first 45 days of your exchange because um, that's your identification period. Put a property on that you're in love with, but make sure you have backup properties that you'll be able to fall back on if there is an issue with the title or there is an issue with the closing. It's always unfortunate, though, when it happens really close to the 180 days or really close to the, the end of the exchange period and they can't really do anything about it. There's not a whole lot to do, unfortunately. The, the 180 days is a hard deadline with the exception of natural disasters that are declared by, you know, the president, they're not extending that 180 days for anything. And now I'm curious too, you know, when you are as a title agent, maybe working with a real estate agent who has 
a certain type of clientele that would benefit from a 1031 exchange. What are some of the things that a title agent can look for in determining whether coming transaction might benefit from this type of program? Honestly, if it's an investment property, it is a perfect conversation to have. And it benefits so many. So I'm always, with title agents, with realtors, that should be the first thing out of their mouth. Because the minute you sell an investment property and you don't exchange it, that's the end of it. They're taking their money and they're leaving. They're not going to be buying something else. And the realtor only really has that one transaction and then they're done. And the title agent has that one transaction and it's done. The minute you hear that they're going to be selling an investment property, that's a conversation to have. Did you know you can defer your capital gains taxes? Did you know that there's an opportunity to increase your wealth by investing 100% of your proceeds instead of 70% or you know, 65%, whatever that number is? And then for the title agents, they're going to get another transaction. If you can tell people that they have an opportunity to reinvest without paying capital gains taxes, they're going to buy another property and there's going to be another transaction. So the realtors make out, the title agents make out. Um, and oftentimes we're seeing people, especially in this market in Boston, the market is so hot right now. People are literally buying, selling properties that they've owned, you know, three family triple decker houses that they've had for 30, 40 years, they bought it for $60,000. It's worth $1.2 million. And now they're buying three properties down in Florida and they're renting them out. They're having vacation rentals. They have a nice little place to go every once in a while. And it works out perfectly for them. So sometimes they end in multiple transactions. So it's so beneficial. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of our audience, possibly based in Florida, we have quite a few clients in, in that region. So they probably are aware of that uh, migration that's happening from the, the Northeast down here to Florida. You, you talked a little bit about, you know, the domino effect. So beyond real estate professionals, what sort of impact does the 1031 exchange have on local economies? I actually just wrote an article on this that was published in the New England Real Estate Journal. It's kind of eye-opening. So you know, plain and simple, 1031 exchange creates jobs. Each transaction, I mean, just think about it. Each transaction has at least two attorneys, two realtors, a title agent, a qualified intermediary, an appraiser, a bank, mortgage person, an inspector, all the supporting staff. Those are crucial. And think about with a 1031 exchange, there's always at least two transactions. So you double those amount of people that are working the state and the local taxes still get paid, you know, the, I should say the transfer taxes, all the filing fees, all of those, that goes right into the state and the economy and all those like ancillary fees, recording costs and such. And our Federation of Exchange Accommodators just commissioned a study with uh, Harvard professors. They're trying to save 1031 exchange, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a little while, but this, these professors, Ling and Pertova, were commissioned by the FEA, and it estimated that 1031 buyers invest 15.4% more capital into replacement properties than non-1031 exchange buyers. So they're investing more money, and they're buying bigger properties, and they're spending more to do that. So higher price, you know, it's driving the prices up, which is going into the economy, and they invest more capital. And one of the 
key things that I don't think people think about either is that it reduces the credit risks for banks. So now they're investing more capital, so their loan to value is higher. So now they're, you know, they're only taking out a 30% loan or a 50% loan as opposed to a 70 or 80%, which allows banks to now deploy more money to more people. So they're spreading that wealth a little bit. It improves the marketability of illiquid real estate. And then with the pandemic recovery, I think it's going to promote, I think we're going to see a lot of it promoting repurposing properties. Office spaces are going to be, they're going empty. In Boston, they're empty now. So those office spaces that the landlords are holding on to, they can sell those. Somebody will come in and build a lab and put capital into it and repurpose those spaces that the landlords just can't afford to do. And the landlords can now have the capital to go buy something else that may make more sense to them. There's so many things that are happening. One transaction creates such a huge domino effect. All it, all it takes is a conversation. We have people that are exchanging because they're doing it as part of their estate plan. You know, they have one property, they have three kids, all the kids hate each other, and they don't want to leave one property to three kids. So they, you know, they sell one and buy three and make their estate plan a little bit easier. They have some people that are just talking about retirement. You know what, I'm done with being a landlord for the last 30 years. I don't want the management and I want to have a place where I'm going to retire. I'm retiring in five years. So I'm going to buy a property down in Florida. I'm going to rent it out for a few years. And then I'm going to decide what I'm going to do with it from there. And from there, they can kind of do anything they want with it. They can make it their primary residence. They can make it their residential property, uh, their second home. They can rent it part-time. They Really, they can do anything they want. Some people are in the process of expanding their empire and they want to exchange one property by multiple properties, or they want to consolidate. They want to sell a bunch of their condos that they've had and buy just one apartment complex. So people really have, there are other people, we have people that said, you know what, I've had this property for 30 years, I'm going to cash out and I'm going to buy something and I'm going to start taking advantage of depreciation because I've had it for 30 years and I can't depreciate it anymore. So now they can start taking the, that depreciation again. So that's always a bonus. So people are out there with a variety of reasons of why they're um, exchanging. So it's good to have those conversations. And it's nice, like, I feel like we provide, and, and I'm sure the title agents and the realtors, but we're providing a solution for people. And this is a really big deal for most people. Um, a, lot of, a lot of our clients have one asset. This is their one investment property. So they're not the uber wealthy. They own a two family that they bought when they were 25 and they've had it for 20, 30 years, and this is their one asset, and this is their ticket to retirement. So providing that solution for them is always a great way to work. I love it. Um, so if they have a mortgage, so with the 1031 exchange, you need to buy equal or greater value, and you need to use all of your cash. So if you're selling for a million dollars and you have a $300,000 mortgage, you're only walking away with $700,000 in cash. So when you do an exchange, you have to buy a million dollars you have to use $700,000. So unless you have that $300,000 to replace the mortgage, you have to take out a mortgage. So not always, but most often, if people have a mortgage on their relinquished property, they're going to take one on their replacement property. And then I'd like to, to move on and talk a little bit about potential changes to the 1031 exchange. There's been a lot of chatter about yes the Biden administration and eliminating it for some real estate investors. I believe it's 
those who have more than $400,000. I don't know the specifics, but hopefully you can go into all of that. Can you just share with us what those proposals are, how likely that is sure. to happen and what people need to know? Yeah, thank you. I love this. So um, yeah, so 1031 exchange is on the chopping block a lot. Again, I told you it's been in the tax code since 1921. So it gets on the chopping block and, you know, National Association of Realtors, Federation of Exchange Accommodators, the Farmers Association, all the agricultural associations, they band together and they talk about and they lobby to keep 1031 exchange alive. I think administrations come in and, you know, they're doing tax reforms and they see this big chunk of money that looks like a loophole and you have to prove every four years that it's not a loophole, that it's not, you know, a tax break, it's a deferral. And we have to educate the government, the senators, the Congress people on what it really is and who it really affects and how it's going to affect the economy. So uh, it's nothing new, but this proposal that came out last week is really a direct threat uh, to 1031 exchange. So on Thursday, I think Biden, maybe it was two weeks ago, but Biden released the American Families Plan. And he's doing a $1.8 trillion spend on expanding education and expanding um, child care. And he's funding it by raising the taxes and eliminating tax breaks. And as he stated, so this was a direct quote, the president would also end special real estate tax breaks, which allow investors to defer taxation when they exchange properties for gains greater than $500,000. So we're all trying to decipher what this means because that's all it said. So we're trying to figure out if somebody has a gain over a million dollars, can they still defer the first 500? We don't have clarification on that yet. We don't know. Is it going to be effective when he when it gets enacted or is it going to be retro affected to January 1st, 2021? We have no idea yet. So there's a lot of unanswered questions. What we do know is that this cap is going to kill Section 1031. It's kind of shocking to us because it's literally half of the amount proposed by Obama back in the day. I think it was back in like 2014, I think he proposed it. And that was at a million dollars. So now they're lowering it even more at $500,000 when the economy is booming and all the properties are being sold for over a million dollars in Boston. I mean, people are literally sitting on, and like I said, people are sitting on triple deckers that they bought for $30,000. They're now a million dollars. And this is their one asset. They've lived in it. That I mean, this is not, these aren't the wealthy people. So it's a little bit scary because it is such a direct threat. And also in conjunction with this Biden plan, they've talked about eliminating the stepped up in basis. So combined with that in the capital gains increased, it's going to be just literally devastating to the real estate market. Devastating. I mean, all this prosperity that we've seen in the real estate market in the last, I want to say since 2009, it's all, I mean, it is going to come crashing down. So it's, it's scary. The Federation of Exchange Accommodators has created a pact and they have been lobbying for the last year to keep 1031 exchange alive, not year, but, you know, close to a year. I mean, this, this has been part of the elections last year. So um, they've been lobbied. We've have a, we have a lobbyist that works directly and hits every senator, every congressman, and make sure that they understand what 1031 exchange does and who it affects, and that it's not a tax break. That most of the exchanges are one time, 
so people aren't exchanging until they die. It ultimately ends in a taxable sale. Do you find that the reason these policy changes happen is because there is such a lack of understanding by people in the government uh, on how it actually functions and how it actually impacts local economies and, and other industries? Absolutely. I mean, they see one chunk of money. Yeah, I mean, they're, here's the thing. They're raising 1.8, they're trying to raise $1.8 trillion. And they're looking at 1031 exchange and saying, okay, so this accounts for $50 billion in tax lost tax revenue. So they see this, yes, $50 billion or $40 billion. I think it's actually $40 billion. $40 billion is a big chunk of money. But when you're looking at $1.8 trillion, it's really not. It's really not a whole lot of money in that grand scheme of things. So it's not trillion. I'm sorry. It's million. Oh, but, yeah. but obviously, it's, it's a small chunk of change compared to what they're trying to raise. And I, I'm curious, too, if the assumption is that these transactions will continue if the program is no longer there. But the program is what kind of spurs on a lot of those transactions. So there's sort of, a, I think, a misalignment there, right? They're they're banking on yeah, it still I mean, continuing the way it is. Yeah, and it won't. I mean, the reality is, is like, I'm, a, I'm literally the perfect example. I bought a two-family house when I was 24 years old. I bought it for, I literally had $10,000. That was like my life savings. I died when I bought this house because I've never, I never spent that kind of money. So I went to the bank and I got my, you know, $120,000 loan or whatever it was. I owned this property and I really didn't, I didn't really didn't do anything to it. I rented it and I didn't make any money. I just kind of broke even. The house was, you know, 23 years later, a little dilapidated and probably could have used some improvements, but I didn't have the money to do it. My house was just breaking even with the rents I was getting. So I exchanged it last year and I bought a nice little condo that was all renovated. It was perfect scenario for me. The person that bought my house completely renovated the house, brought it up to where it should, the standards that it should be. Um, and the reality is, is that if I had to pay the taxes on that, I would have just kept it forever. There's no way that I would have given up that $70,000 in taxes because I can't afford to give up $70,000. I would have just kept it forever. I would have just kept like refinancing it and kind of band-aiding it a little bit. But I mean, by doing the exchange, he bought a property, he renovated it, he had contractors and, you know, hardware stores and landscapers and all these people that came in and fed the economy by bringing this house back to life. He increased the rents. He increased the amount of people that could live in the property, you know, increase the apartments. I bought something that I wanted. It was just, it was a win-win situation. And the reality is, is if 1031 exchange wasn't there, it wouldn't have happened. And I'm just one of a million people. So I'm like the very normal story. So based on these potential changes, do you recommend that real estate investors take steps now in anticipation of them? Do you recommend that title agents talk to maybe the clients where they have done 1031 exchanges with in the past? Is there anything they should be doing now in anticipation of the, the policy change? I mean, yeah, we have these conversations with people all the time. If people are on the fence, now's the time to strike. 
again, we don't know what that policy is going to look like. We don't know if tax reform is going to happen. We don't know if we can get it blocked before the Congress. We don't know if it does go through, if it's going to be retroactive to January 1st. So there are so many unknowns. However, hot real estate market, active buyers that are purchasing over asking price, limited inventory. But if you're open to different types of properties, yeah, have that conversation with people. Make sure that they know that they can take advantage of this tax deferral right now, and it should benefit them in the long run. So if you're on the fence, now's the time to do it, which I think is why we're so busy. <laughs> like We are so busy that it's, uh, I think that's why. What can or should title agents do to educate themselves, their partners, their consumers about 1031 exchanges? And, and also, is there anything that people can be doing right now to sort of share their opinion on these proposals? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the Federation of Exchange Accommodators is our trade association, like I said. They lobby really, really hard. So if you visit 1031.org, that's the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, the nationwide trade association, that's their website. It's a wealth of information, but they do have an advocacy page there, and it tells you all about the tax proposals that are enacted. It tells you all about the lobbying efforts that they're doing. Um, it gives you all sorts of educational tools about 1031 Exchange. Um, so there, it really is a fantastic website. So 1031.org is really the place to start. And if you do feel strongly about 1031 exchange and preserving it and making sure that it stays part of the uh, tax code, there's a link, again, through the 1031, through uh, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators. What they did was they put together um, a really nice letter to all of our Congress reps and all, all of our senators that details how 1031 exchange impacts the economy and how it's a benefit to, to remain in our tax code. And all you really have to do is put your name and your zip code in. It drafts the emails and it sends it to your specific state representatives. It's on my LinkedIn page. They have done such a great job of really starting a grassroots effort, getting out to all the qualified intermediaries and making sure all the QIs are talking to all the realtors and all the realtors are talking to the attorneys and, and just really spreading the word. So that's really what we're doing because it's important that everybody has heard and every single congressperson, every single senator hears what we're saying. And, and we have the proof. So that's another really great thing that's on the FEA website is the studies that they've commissioned. The Lingen Protrover one that I, that I mentioned, they did a macro study and a micro study. So it really shows the effects on the economy and what 1031 does. I don't know if there's anything that you'd like to add that you feel like maybe we didn't get a chance to cover or something that we maybe need to discuss in a little bit more detail? Um, no, so there's, you know, so there's real specific guidelines on 1031 exchange. And I know we didn't really get into them, but we do have a digital brochure that we hand out to all of our clients. And what's really nice about it is that it gives you the step-by-step. -step. So if somebody asks like, how do I start? What do I do? And how does this process look? Um, we have a really a step-by-step -step guideline in our brochure, along with the frequently asked questions. So there are the standard 10 questions that everybody asks that everybody needs to know. And that brochure uh, really answers everything that you need. In a, 
in that standard kind of very simple clean exchange there's always you know we always get ones with hair on it <laughs> i really want to thank you again michelle for your time and your expertise hope you have a great day as well thank you thank you all be sure to visit 1031.org for the resources Michelle mentioned and 1031buildsamerica.org forward slash take dash action to share your opinion on 1031 exchanges with Congress. Title Talks is produced by PropLogics and myself. Original music is by Cole Sando. Original graphics are by Jordan Norris. Until next time, happy closings.